0: What's up? Happy Friday. Welcome to Canucks Talk here on SportsNet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd. My co-host is Canucks Insider, Thomas Trance. Also covering the team at the Athletic. What's up, yeah, huh? I knew I knew you were. I knew you were gonna jump in on that one. What's up? I'm asking a you a perfectly question. valid expression. What's up? Is I just used a perfectly valid expression to open the show. That's what's up. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue you're, Machinery. You're, you're and getting ready
1: equipment. You're getting ready for Super Bowl commercial season. <laughs>
0: Still a great ad, by the way. Anyways, uh, your Kubota All-Star Team, Avenue AvenueMachinery.ca, DouglasLakeEquipment.com, Comedy Alive from the Kintec Studio, Kintec Footwear, and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintec.net. Kintex Google reviews. That's what's up. That is what's up. Stock up in a big way. Kintex Google reviews. 650-650, Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, but
1: you haven't answered my question to answer. What? What's up? I'm just shaking my head at that t- phrase. Pretty sure no one says it anymore.
0: That's a hundred percent wrong.
1: No one says 100% what's up Hundred percent wrong. No, it's like it's like fiddlesticks. No, it's nothing <laughs> <Yeah>. like fiddlesticks. <laughs> it's not remotely like fiddlesticks. It's pretty much the fiddlesticks. <laughs> two <laughs> expressions of greetings. could
0: could almost not be more different than fiddlesticks and what's up. Yeah. But anyways, <laughs> what's what's what's
1: down? fiddlesticks
0: yes yeah. fiddlesticks is down stock down also down sure. also down what's up all right um look i'm not saying it's at its peak
1: <laughs> but it's you know it's like joe pavelski it's still going strong no, after its peak no chance it's like jamie ben <laughs> <laughs> doubtful um all right, let's. Get, it's rebounding let's, a bit solely because of you. Enough of this. We've got. That's hey man, I'll take it. Can you imagine
0: the man responsible for bringing back what's up? I love it. Uh, we've got like a massive packed show, so we should probably stop wasting time, put it and, on your epithet. and get to some Canucks talk.
1: Uh, they beat Bo Horvat. Here lies and the Islanders here lies Jamie Dodd. What's up? <laughs> Sounds good to me. Um, okay, they beat the Islanders. Yes, Elias. 5 Pe- Elias Petterson's really good. Andre Kuzmenko, what's n- what's not up? Andre Kuzmenko's ice time. Yep. Speaking of stock up, stock down. Brock Besser up. Andre Kuzmenko down. This happens sometimes when you make a coaching change, right? Opinions change. If We talked about it a little bit after the New Jersey game, right? I said, oh man, I really thought Brock Besser was good on the forecheck there. And Rick Tockett's been talking a lot about what he's looking for. Brock Bessler's probably not a line driver, but he's a good complimentary top six scorer, and he's smart enough to play matchup minutes, right? The context of this drop in Andre Kuzmenko's usage also, I think, helps us understand what we're seeing right now. From Vancouver's wider forward usage, because let me give you a stat really quickly. Well, yeah, the yeah, go, you go ahead because I have thoughts about that too. But you go ahead first. Well, well, because it all, it all, it's all part of the same picture. Because it,
0: it's real, it's no coincidence that
1: it's related to Bohorvat leaving the team. No, right? The Kuzmenko is connected to the yes. Besserbone. Da 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 What's up? Not this. <laughs> um. Last night, Elias Pedersen. Led all Canucks skaters in terms of head-to-head ice time against the barzell Horvat line. Now, part of that is out of Rick Tockett's control because he's on the road. Part of that was maybe Lane Lambert's choice, but the frequency with which those two played yeah, against each other—it's not like Tockett was trying to avoid it. it you, you know, it, maybe Lambert wanted that too, but Tockett was like, "All right, that's cool. You—you pr- you probably would have like—they spent something like." Pedersen spent something like 55-ish percent of his ice time against the Horvat line five on five last night. If Talkett had disagreed with the matchup, it would have been closer to 40, right? Like, he he was fine with it. JT Miller and his line spent one minute against Bo Horvat. JT Miller spent most of his time against bottom six competition. In fact, the line he played against the third most was the Nelson line. Like, they, they played bottom six competition. This is in stark contrast with what we saw when Rick Talkit, in Rick Tockett's first week, where what was the talking point? I'm going to try and get Elias Pettersson out against the opposition's yeah. you know, bottom of the end of their lineup. It's taken Rick Tockett about two weeks to figure out that his team might be best served. Or or look, and sorry, I should say this less definitively. It looks to me like it's taken about two weeks for Rick Tockett to figure out that this team might be best served with Elias Pettersson and Tufts. And if you're playing Elias Petterson and Tufts, what do you need to put with him? And does that diminish your appetite for playing Pedersen with a player like Andre Kuzmenko and enhance your appetite for playing him with Brock Besser, whose two-way form appears to have rebounded in a major way? Not a huge surprise, given that he's now put more time between him and the injury. That's what it sort of tells. The story that I'm sort of watching is, Rick. the the big story is Rick Tockett figures out roster, right? We're going to watch in real time as Rick Tockett shapes and forms his own opinions about how the Canucks are deployed and how he's best served using them in order to win games. Already, I think we're seeing a spike in his appetite for playing Pedersen in Tufts. And as a result, I think you're seeing a change in emphasis over who Pedersen plays with. And all of that said, it still doesn't explain Andre Kuzmenko playing more than only Sheldon Dries last night. Like, that's troubling. Right against the Rangers, at least he played third line minutes. Last night he was under ten. That, you know, we're not there yet. It's only two games, right? I'm not. It uh, might not even be a trend. Might be a blip. But if this continues in the wake of the Canucks committing two years and eleven million to Andre Kuzmenko, that becomes something of a concern. Yeah, it's not. It's not ideal. It's not what you want. I will. You for know, now, though. For now, though, I think with the deadline approaching, with the You know, chance that it's partly a showcase, on and on. I'm not going to overreact to it beyond sort of just pointing this out. Could be a blip. But the way I see it is a change in his matchup usage has helped create an environment where Besser is going to play up top. Big game for him. And really, a big game for him in the wake of a really good week for him. His play without the puck looked great against the Devils. He had two really interesting scoring opportunities against the Rangers that he misfired on in the third period, one set up by Patterson, one set up by by Beauvillier. But we said it yesterday, right? If he keeps getting those chances, he's going to start scoring. Last night, the bottom line was there. big game. He's had a couple
0: of those kind of old-school Besser wrist shot opportunities that haven't found the back of the net, but they've looked like heavy for the goalie Mm -hmm. to deal with. The goalies have to kind of fight them off in a little bit of an awkward way, right? And so, you know, that's kind of... Look, there's got to be the bottom line there and I know he produced last night. I'm not saying, "Oh, like Besser shot his back or anything," but it's kind of early signs of, "Hey, maybe he is rounding into form." And but the two-way the, thing but is But
1: the bottom line hasn't been the issue for Besser this year. No, no, no. It's been play driving. It well, it's been the two-way play. Like yeah. he hasn't But We've got years and years of data that Bohorov or sorry, the Brock Besser is not a bad two way player. Why would we suddenly? Well, that's what I was going to say.
0: It, you think back to it was the North Division season where he was the team's best forward. A large part of that was he was really good as a two way player. Yeah, when not a lot of other people were. But he's in that always season. been
1: pretty good as a two way player. I mean, he's not like an impactful defensive stopper or anything, but he's really smart. Like he's smart and he's good on the wall. And all of a sudden, in the wake of sur- a surgical procedure. That kept him from working out for two weeks because of infection risk. His two-way play sucked for three, four months. It's too long. I mean, I'm not going to defend that level of permissiveness defensively beyond just saying we shouldn't just expect that to be who he is because he was that for a short blip of time. How many times have we seen a player look like a lot more than they are for a three, four? I mean, there there was, what, two, three months there in the 20... 19-2020 19 2020 20 season where people were like Jake for Tannen, playoff performer guy got cut by a second division Swiss team this week. Um, you know, we saw Elias Pettersson struggle last season for four months, he's a he's unbelievable, and he was again last
0: well. Night. The Pettersson thing is a big part of it, too, right? Like, I think we, we got to get to, I mean, we haven't even talked about Pettersson. he was phenomenal last night. He was he the at what story. he's doing five on five scoring around the NHL, overall scoring
1: now. Well, I around the NHL, and now in Tufts. And now, like he won, he won a matchup against that Barzal Horvat line. That's that looks really good, <laughs> looks incredible.
0: And I do think when we're talking about Kuzmenko and Besser, you know, not that it's all related to Pedersen, but it's no coincidence that Brock Besser starts to play with Elias Pedersen, and all of a sudden he starts to have really good results. And Kuzmenko. Goes away from Elias Petterson and you're not noticing him as much. Like, we have to start factoring in the Pettersson factor to whoever he is playing with or not playing with. Just like we would, not to the same degree, but just like you would with Connor McDavid. Like, guess what? Somebody goes up and plays with Connor McDavid, yeah, they're going to score. Somebody goes up and plays with Elias Pettersson,
1: they're going to score. That has to be a part of the conversation we now. Not to mention the power play one ice time thing. You know? Yeah. Uh, and how, I mean, how many times have we said it? Or how many times did I say it before they committed to Kuzmenko, right? Like, the Canucks have buttered their own bread here. You know? And, and I mean, it's too soon. I'm not going to dunk on saying, like, two games of Kuzmenko not playing a ton sort of shows that if you simply prioritize giving those plum opportunities to the guy you've already signed and whose value you're committed to trying to rebuild in, in the wake of a compromise deal, um, <laughs> like... Man, that's that's my concern here, and and it does feel like we saw that play out in real time this week. Um, I'm again, I'm not being definitive about this. There's a lot of season, a lot of road left to run, but I, but you know, this is this is what it this is what that would look like based on the conversations we were having three weeks ago. And man, that that just upsets me. Like, I'm getting I'm getting tired of these cautionary tales playing out, not not like over the long haul, but right away. <laughs> No, no. I mean, it is. It's like
0: literally. Well, Kuzmenko's playing well, but he's playing with Elias Patterson, and you know, and then he goes away from Patterson and Besser's
1: with him. It's like, wow, Besser's playing really well. Yeah, uh, I tweeted the Canucks' schedule in March and April last night, and someone had mentioned it was in my mentions, and they were like, "Well, you don't know. The Canucks are one of the most unpredictable teams in the league." And I'm like, "What's unpredictable about this team? They're getting a new coach bump, and <laughs> they're winning games again." Because they were never, they never should have been in the company of San Jose and and those teams, right? Like San Jose, Montreal, Philly. It was, it
0: was big, by the way, that uh, Detroit and Philly won last night as well. So no no harm, no foul for the Canucks
1: picking well, up ex- the win, picking except it up the comeback San Jose win. lost. Yeah, San Jose lost. So that's, that is huge. That's the one that matters because the Canucks are, you know, the bottom five is the place to be. Because that's how you can lose a lottery and still get a top five just, pick.
0: Just like you were talking about, you know, risk mitigation uh, with Aiden
1: McDonough. Like I'm focused on risk mitigation with them moving up the standings. That's my focus, not moving down. Yeah. Oh, so. no, I mean, I don't, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, they they are they are definitely going to pick outside the top 6 I think my without yeah. a lottery win without a lottery win they're going to need a lottery win to pick in the top 5 they're going to be like 7 or 8 I think is yep, what I, I think would, that's what I would guess I think that's based right good. now. hey yeah. one one other thing no, not just no harm no foul they helped themselves by good beating point. the islanders that's a good point right? if you're going to win a game down the stretch it's a good one to win your highest upside yeah it's the, the islanders pick protections is an interesting one for me because yeah. y- y- your best outcome is obviously it deferring, and then the Islanders bottoming out next season. But there's a real chance that the Islanders are better next year too. Hundred percent. So you 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 also take a pretty big risk. And if they're worse, the difference in the quality of the like, I think the most likely good, like the best, not okay. Obviously, best the, is well, first the best outcome next is year, right. The best outcome is first of all. If you kind of weight yeah.
0: the combination of best and most likely, I think it's 14. You pick like Fourteen this year. That would which be great. I think is also highly likely you I think there's get, a really good chance of that you
1: could get Cam Allen at 14 sure I'm gonna pretend like I know who that is wow Cam Allen at 14 six foot one super fast skating right-handed defenseman in the OHL. sounds good he's Sounds sick. good to me sign me up uh, you know what he's not sick but he's really good I,
0: I like <laughs> that prospect a lot but yeah like I think that's not obviously not the best case scenario, but something pretty close to it. And also one of the most likely scenarios. So that's good. <laughs> you could get Cam Allen. Huh? <laughs> Stop the presses. <laughs> Give <laughs> to be on the head. Drant says Canucks could get Cam Allen at 14. Going viral on Twitter. <laughs> uh, uh, we're going to have be joined by uh, Jonathan Wall, former member of the Canucks uh, front uh, office. We never time. even
1: captioned the show, eh? Because I was like needling you the whole time. Yeah, that's all right. What's yeah, what's uh, got, got a lot with, of
0: guests. What's up with the show? we got a lot of guests. We're going to talk to Jonathan Wall here momentarily. Uh, talk about some of the behind-the-scenes planning that goes into the trade deadline for an NHL team. Dave Nonis, former Canucks GM at 1 o'clock. And then uh, our guy, Dmitry Filipovich of the Hockey PTO Cast at one thirty. So big, big show. We'll also try to make time uh, for your uh, texts and your thoughts as well. And Snoop texts in, Snoop the dog. Uh, could the drop in Kuzmenko usage be that Besser is being showcased with Pedersen to maximize return? I certainly don't think that hurts the situation. Like now, the no, thing no, is No, no, that I mean that's absolutely
1: context that we have to keep in you mind. You can bump
0: up Besser and drop Kuzmenko a little bit without dropping him to the degree that we've seen his minutes be dropped, right? Like there's a middle ground there that talk it's not using right now. We'll see. It could just be very short term with Kuzmenko. It's not as if he's going to be in the doghouse forever, right? But
1: we'll see. Uh, there's a lot there's a lot at play. We'll we'll ask John Wall about it too because the Coach change, usage change, dynamic is always a fascinating one. It is interesting
0: too because you all like you think you know. Okay, we're getting um, alignment now, and they are obviously there's much more alignment between the coach and the general manager. But that doesn't mean they're going to all like the same players, right? And that they're all going to have the same idea about, for example, where Andre Kuzmenko uh, fits in the uh, in the lineup. So there's as much as it is like they're hiring their guy they're bringing in someone who they agree with his philosophy and all that there still might be instances where you know Rick Tockett looks at the roster and has a bit of a different idea than management does 650 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line uh you can get your thoughts in as well uh Mike Mike brought up yesi uh, puljarvi is an exception to the uh anyone can score with mcdavid rule a name we might get into later in the show as well but Now, very pleased to be joined, as I mentioned, by Jonathan Wall, longtime former member of the Canucks front office. Always a pleasure to have him on the show. Jonathan, thanks very much for doing this. How are you?
2: Uh, my pleasure glad to be here I'm doing great uh beautiful day in the sunny okanagan here today
0: yeah it was uh I'm trying to remember I think it was nice here too when I came in I've already <laughs> forgot but I think it was pretty sunny but I'm glad to hear it's sunny in the okanagan so yeah. we are we are three days or three three days three weeks away from the NHL trade dead trade deadline right now uh Jonathan and you know from your perspective and I know you were very focused on the salary cap uh, when you were working with the Canucks. What does planning for the trade deadline mean from a salary cap perspective for teams?
2: Well, I mean, it, it sort of depends where you're at and what your plan is. If you're looking to you know, to add players, it changes versus maybe move, looking to move players off. But I think ultimately your main goal right now is to, to sort of try to have as much flexibility as you can. Um, whether it's having players that are waiver exempt or you know having a real good sense on your injury timelines and stuff like that it's just trying to make sure you have all your all your ducks in a row so you have the most flexibility uh, possible as you come to the deadline
1: John, will you explain to our listeners the difference between being above and below the line and how much attention that gets from, NHL hockey operations departments, but specifically those engaged with the cap principally uh, at this time of year?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it, you know, um, I used to use that term. I think uh, Lawrence was, you know, we were one of the first people that sort of looked at it that way. And basically, you draw a line with your players at the NHL level versus your players at the HL level. And, uh, you know, when they're below the line in the American Hockey League, for example, they're not counting on your cap unless they're you know, over the the, the minimum there. And um, it just changes your flexibility in terms of being able to acquire players at the deadline. If you have a number of players that can be dropped below the line and come off your cap, it may allow you to take on a player um, before going into LTI or before doing something else. Uh, it also changes their eligibility after the deadline regarding the, the recall rule mm. and their eligibility for the American League playoffs.
1: How would that impact a team's thinking in terms of a player like you know and, and obviously I, I mean the hypothetical instruction but the canucks have left niels hoaglander who has two games before he hits waiver eligibility in the american league so he's below the line uh at the moment uh going yep. into the trade deadline how would that sort of position impact a team's options with a you know relatively high value fringy uh you know u23 guy
2: well, I think for the, on the Canucks standpoint, it obviously, if they recalled him and he became waiver eligible, his cap space would not be able to be, to be removed from their cap in the event they wanted to take on a, a salary at the deadline. So they would lose that flexibility. And for another team looking to acquire him, the, the fact that he wouldn't count on their cap may be a really good draw for a team to want to acquire him below the line. So he doesn't count on their cap. They can sort some stuff out as they move towards the playoffs and then could potentially recall him using one of their recalls at that point with a little more flexibility above the line and and then get to use him either at the end of the regular season or in the playoffs. So it definitely gives extra flexibility for a player like Hoaglander for the Canucks or for a team looking to acquire him.
0: How difficult is it I'm sure there are situations where one decision you know perhaps perhaps to leave a player in the AHL might be really advantageous from a salary cap perspective, but there might also be pressure to get them into the lineup maybe it's better for the development to help the team at the NHL level what what does that process look like as a front office kind of working through when there's two things that you want to accomplish that are kind of mutually exclusive from each other?
3: Well
2: absolutely and the the NHL has made it difficult with you know with the rules that they've put in place to protect the integrity of the American Hockey League. So you do have the the recall limits and you do have obviously the above the line and below the line so you get to a point where you really have to weigh what you're trying to accomplish and i think um, when we were when i was with the canucks we had the additional challenge of generally having our, our farm team quite quite a far distance away so it meant you had less you know less opportunity to have a smaller roster in vancouver because you always had to plan for injuries and other eventualities. Whereas having the team in Abbotsford, it allows the Canucks to maybe carry a smaller roster, get into that emergency situation, and then be able to use recall players that wouldn't count against their, their recall rule. John,
1: when a team undergoes a coaching change, oftentimes we see certain players' usage. Uh, tweaked, changed. Um, (laughs) coaches have, coaches have their guys. I don't think this is any secret just as we all have, you know, people we trust more and, and on and on, no matter what line of work we're in. Um, we're seeing that play out a little bit with the Canucks with Andre Kuzmenko's ice time in significant decline, uh, especially over the course of this week. Um, how do teams manage that? What are some of the things that, you know, uh, your average fan or even your average hockey reporter might not be considering in terms of what the club is looking at in, you know, his minutes being reduced?
2: Well, I think, you know, I don't want to speak to the Kuzmenko situation specifically. I don't have any inside knowledge or anything on that. But I think there's, there's definitely a situation where you have a a new coach comes in and a player might not play a style or might not, you know, fit the bill of what that coach is looking for or for their usage. And it is challenging. I mean, you've got the the new Canucks coach who I think has this season and then one more season before sort of entering the last year of his contract. Mm -hmm. So he's trying to get that team up and going, and he's probably looking at the end of next season for needing to start looking at his own future with the team. So he has to try to get the, the players that he wants, get them up to speed and get them playing his way as quick as possible.
1: With uh with a player on an entry level deal though whose minutes decline, is there any anything else a team might be looking at or um you know, particularly in a, with a player like Pod Colson or sorry, like Kuzmenko's already been extended, um you know, would there be any thought given to the bonus impact of him playing less here?
2: Well when I was You know, working with our group there, I always felt that I was the person who would, you know, present some of those things from just the hard, cold facts of it. And, uh, I think there, when we're looking at, um, LTI, the challenge with LTI is people sometimes look at it as this magic sort of bullet to allow you to, to escape any of your responsibilities and stuff. But in reality, it is really hard to get out of LTI. You, you generally overspend, then you're incurring potentially bonus overages, which go against your cap next year. If you have players on long-term deals in LTI, it just perpetuates, so it's really hard to get out unless you commit. So at some point, we'd be looking at players potentially who have bonuses to acquire and look at how, how their, their situation or their status on the team affects that. And one of the interesting things is when a player gets traded away, their stats leave with them. So for example, if a player had a, an ice time bonus for being, say, top six on the team, if you trade a player like a Bo Horvat away, all of a sudden that top, top line minute is gone and everyone else potentially shifts upwards. So you might find if a team is, is, is moving a lot of veteran players, they may find some of these rookies end up near the top of those, of those bonus charts and end up incurring bonuses.
0: John, one of the things that's become, I mean, it's always been important, but especially now with the flat cap lingering as it has, the the issue of cap space at the deadline has become so front and center to the point where even dealing a player like Bo Horvat ended up being a cap neutral move this year for the Canucks between retaining and uh, taking back Anthony Beauvillier as well. How has the, the value and the perspective of cap space that teams around the league have, how has that evolved in the, in the time you were, you know, entering into the league to, to now?
2: I mean, if you, if you look at the fact that, you know, the majority of the teams in the league are either right up against it, are an LTI or have very little space, I don't know that it really has evolved maybe as much as the media would like it to. I think, you know, looking at the situation now, having cap space is a huge asset and might be one of the biggest trade assets you can have as you get towards a deadline. Uh, There are a number of of players on pretty much any team, I would say. I bet you every team's got two or three players that you could probably have for free. If you have the cap space, you could have those players for free. And they might not be terrible contracts. They might not be terrible players. They might be serviceable players that could play minutes on your team. But having that cap space is a huge asset uh, as teams plan and try to move forward here.
0: As you mentioned, kind of we in the media, we often like to say like, hey, team has a little bit of cap space, even the Canucks right now with their LTI space, you know, take on a bad deal and potentially get, right. get paid to do it. It sounds yeah. really simple in theory. That's why we like to talk about it. As you said, <laughs> how difficult is it to sell, you know, within hockey operations, but also upwards to ownership and move like that?
2: Well, it's challenging. I mean, you're, you're, you're asking, you know, ownership to take on uh, financial liability potentially. And you're also you know, maybe sending a message to your team or 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 to staff on the team that again are looking to get extensions or looking to, you know, plan their their situation moving forward. So it, it is it is attractive, but it does take a commitment from the entirety of an organization from ownership on down to say, we're gonna make this plan, we're gonna have a plan, whether it's a two year or three year plan, and this is what we're gonna do in that time. And as I said, getting out of LTI sometimes requires a concerted effort over time to start divesting um, liabilities and get yourself out of LTI so you can actually start to accrue cap space and you're not starting behind the eight ball every season.
1: John, all of that said, if you're a team positioned like the Canucks are, where you you actually have $4 in LTI space at the moment or just over, And the ability to carve out more with another player, um, you know, almost, you can almost hit 8 million with Tanner Pearson also done for the season. How big an asset can that be at the deadline and how difficult is it to wedge yourself into the market as a problem solving sort of clearinghouse for rival clubs?
2: Well, I think that position, Thomas, has been established. I think teams have done that in the past. So I I think that's not really a foreign concept as much. I think with the availability of this information, I think teams know who has money and who has availability. When we would get towards a deadline, we would have a, a spreadsheet that we would, we would make up, and it would have you know, it would have 12 or 14 columns across for each team, and it would list their cap space and who's on LTI and what they're looking for, what their assets are, their draft picks, uh, their top prospects. And we would sort of have a, you know, I kind of liken it to when you see an NFL coach on the sideline with his play sheet. That was sort of the, the, the sheet that I created, which would be sort of this this large sheet that you would have every single team in the league, you know, and and all of their elements that, that might be in play at the deadline where you could really look at it and try to target, okay, you know, we're looking for teams maybe with excess first-round picks. Who has the picks? Who has cap space? Who has injuries? Um, you know, you're seeing what's going on in Las Vegas right now, and I'm sure teams who have goalies uh, potentially that they want to move are targeting uh, the Vegas team right now as maybe they're a, a team that's looking for a goalie. So you try to get all that information laid out. I like to do it on on one page where I had it all in front of me. And like I said, I, I, in, in my mind, I wanted to create that sort of that. This is my play calling sheet, which allowed us to have all that information in front of us. Jonathan, that's
0: great insight. We really appreciate it. Uh, enjoy the rest of the sunny day in the Okanagan. Hopefully we'll chat again soon.
2: Yeah, thank you. Thank you, guys. Have a great day.
0: That is Jonathan Wall, of course, a longtime former member of the Canucks front office and with a a great deal of insight into the salary cap and how it impacts what teams want to do, what they're able to do at the trade. Deadline. Uh, 650, 650 is the Dunbar-Lumber text line. Went a little long there in the first segment to fit Jonathan Wall in. We will take a break now, talk more about uh, the game last night, some of the interesting, notable things to come out of it. We'll read some of your texts as well. It is Canuck's talk here on Sportsnet 650.
4: Catch up on what happened in Vancouver sports with Halford and Bruff in the morning. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple,
3: Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Trance, live from the Kintex studio. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line, Dunbar Lumber, with three stores to serve you in Ladner on Bridge Street or Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Sportsnet 650 has teamed up with the Clayton Public House in Surrey to bring you the big football party on Super Sunday, February 12th, hosted... By our very own Randy Janda. Reserve your table now at the Claytonpub.com. We'll have tailgate and drink specials plus prizing throughout the day. Kickoff is at 3 30. The Clayton Public House. Good food, good people, good times. Uh, you mentioned uh that if the Canucks are picking, say, 14th, they might be able to get Cam Allen as the the right-handed defenseman. Uh you brought up.
1: Did I get the name wrong? No. Well, I don't know. I haven't Googled him or anything, so it's entirely possible. I don't know who he is. He Uh, sounds like a Revolutionary (laughs) War founding father. A little bit. Yeah, no, I I nailed it. Came out. But, um... Gulf Storm.
0: Immediately, our inbox started filling up with, like, four or five people texting in. The Swede.
1: Yeah. Well, hold on. Hold on. What about David Reinbacher?
0: So, our listeners are, are, are clearly already in that familiar Canucks fan mode of... Oh, it's February. It's March. I better start really cramming on the draft at this point. So, I mean, I don't. I'm not, Again, I'm. I, I know the name, David Reinbacher I do not have like strong David Reimbaucher opinions. Uh, but we're gonna have to. Uh, we're gonna have to get on the draft prep train at some point here. We're gonna have to catch up with our listeners. I mean, dancer. people just like the right-handed guy. Yeah. As opposed, to- I think that's pretty much go down the list of like you know. Like I know uh, our guy Bukla had his big draft rankings at Sportsnet up his top forty recently. And you know, basically, just go down the list. Like, oh, there's a right-handed defenseman. By the way, he had Andrew Crystal at like six,
1: I think. Bukla, yeah, yeah. I mean, Andrew—that's Cr- a big rise for him, Crystal. So it's Crystal, by the way. Sorry, not—he's not, he's not fancy champagne. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be good, though. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the uh, so the thing about Andrew Crystal is, if you like him, you like him a lot. And if you're concerned about the skating, you probably don't like him a lot. Like, that that's sort of the the question is, like, Crystal's one of those guys who, if he hits, right? If he can upgrade his skating, not, like, to the point where he's above average, even. Just, like, to be an average NHL, a passable NHL skater. Then he's a guy who you can, like, maybe run a power play one through, right? <laughs> like, he's he's got the best hands in this draft outside of that one kid from North Van. What's his name? So for the most part, like Andrew Crystal is a super elite talent from a skill standpoint. There's just questions about the feet. So if you believe that you can fix the feet, you're going to value him as a top 10 player. And that's why, you know, teams are going to be looking at him as like a guy who could fall, but he probably won't fall that far. Well, if everyone's like, ooh, I hope he falls to me, there's a good chance he's not well, going to fall to you because which, everyone else is thinking that. Which we've seen in a, in a lot of drafts the last few years. Like there was, you know, well, Kent Johnson might fall to the, Kent Johnson, by the time the draft draft day rolled around, there was no chance KJ was falling. Um, likewise, uh, Denton Matejcik, remember Matejcik yeah. was my guy last, yep. last draft? There was, you know, some thought maybe he'll be available in the 20s. Nope. 12, off the board before the Canucks picked even. Right? Like how how many times was I like they shouldn't pass on this guy and they never got the chance. So, you know, it's gonna be interesting, but but I think I think a lot of the Vancouver kids, the kids that I've been like really yeah. pounding the table about, I think a lot of them have the sorts of fans where you're going like Well, if anything they seem to be risers. No, More I, than anything, I, right? Like, like Crystal has risen. Well, Benson like, too. Yeah, I don't I like so someone asked me, um, you, do you know that a guy under the under the height of five nine out of the CHL hasn't been drafted in the first round since Yamamoto? Wow! So it's wow. like it's pretty rare that a player like ben, with Benson's profile goes in the top ten, and yet you know <laughs> you think about like how many teams would like a do over on their first round picks in Braden Point's draft year? How many teams would like a do over on their third round pick <laughs> Get a Triampkin ahead yep. of Braden Point? <laughs> um, so. You know, you you sort of look through, but Benson's another guy who I think, you know, could be available at eight. Nope,
0: uh, I, I really don't think he will be. I even look at the defensemen, uh, Mollenhauer and
1: Dragasavage, right, rising from where they were, and we'll see how how oh, the, how much that ends going, up going but, into the, going into that CHL top prospects game. I thought there was a chance that Mollenhauer was like a third rounder. Yeah, no chance. Yeah, no, it's not happening now. It, well, and we saw it with Fraser Minton last year too. Uh, I You know, I thought there was a chance the Canucks might look at him in the third round. Gone off the board at 37. Right? I mean, the the West is churning out a ton of good, good players and they're rising for a reason. Uh, this text comes in as we're just kicking around draft stuff here. Is this a draft where they should move the Islanders pick? Uh,
0: and I think he means trade down, accumul- accumulate maybe a late first and another pick. Is there that big yes. a difference on the talent? Trading down, especially like when you're the Canucks and you're going to have... You're already going to have a top 10 pick. And you have not drafted a lot in recent years and your prospect pool is really thin. Like that's the perfect opportunity to trade down. Now, it still has, has to make sense value-wise and there has to be someone willing to pay the price to trade up and all of that, but like yeah, you should absolutely be exploring like say trading down from 14 to the 20s or whatever and picking up uh some nice value on the other side.
1: It's like the perfect situation to explore doing. Well, on this team, you have to consider team needs too, right? I mean, there are teams where, you know, landing the right player Matt, who might be early, like ready sooner, you know, like here, here's the, the example I like to use is the 2019 NHL draft where the Canucks were in talks with Arizona about trading down, right? And if you go look at that draft history, you'll see that the Arizona Coyotes ultimately made the deal with Philadelphia and it was basically a mirror image deal. They wanted that Soderstrom kid. The the Swedish defenseman, the Canucks uh, were sitting at 10. The Flyers, I think, were 11 or 12. And there were there were two good picks. Now, the Canucks kept, kept the pick and drafted Pod Colson. Uh, if they'd traded down, they were sort of most... I think Newhook would have been the top of their list, but they were also considering Peyton Krebs, like to the point where there was discussions like, can we draft a kid who's on crutches in our home, t- in, in our home barn? <laughs> or is that like, what are the optics like, right? So, I mean, serious enough consideration that... There were conversations about the p r aspect of it um if the Canucks do that trade, you end up with new hook and, and and Samuel fajamo out of l a now now an l a prospect who's like fine like he's like a fringy you know n- not even a pod colson or or sorry not even a hoaglander quality prospect, but like so you'd you'd have come out of that draft with an extra body. Does that matter, or would you rather have the more unique player in pod Colson like if pod Colson hits he's a big power forward who's almost impossible to find whereas new Hook is you know a middle six guy not dime a dozen but a far more common player type even if he does stick at center um you know it, it's it's tough to know like for the Canucks at in at that point I don't think they made the wrong call because pod Colson had a direct path to being on your roster faster mm. right and and the team at, at that point was looking at like they made the jt miller trade the next day they're looking at you know like the petterson hughes elc windows and, like being a team on the rise and i don't think it's necessarily an error to not have made that trade the connects right now though like what's the marginal value in a player who's five percent better than another player when you can also have another asset you know, when you can increase your surface area, your probability of getting a hit that actually changes the traje- trajectory of this franchise. This team's need for value is so great that I think if they were able to aggressively trade down and say they go into the draft with, you know, what, what they're they're poised to have eight picks this, this class because they lost their seventh, I think. Yeah, I believe so. I think, I think the Coyotes hold their seventh from the... <laughs> the cherry on trade. top. Yeah, truly. Yeah,
0: they don't have their seventh. So but right now they have, let's say the Islanders won... Uh, Transfers They would have Seven picks right now So you figure You add If the Islanders won If the Islanders won Okay Transfers You figure add another one With Shen maybe So Maybe So they also don't have Their fifth rounder Because they traded it For Ethan Bear Right
1: So they don't have a fifth And they don't have a seventh Okay so they have Extra fourth Potentially an extra first Right now I think if you're able To come out Like say say you add Let's say they add Two more And go in with nine I think if you can come out With eleven players That's what you're That's what you're talking about in fact, to me, given where this team's positioned, 11 picks would be kind of the bare minimum. I think any less is a problem. Truly, like, this is the worst prospect, one of the worst pros- bottom five prospect system in hockey, even having added Aturatu. Like, that's really problematic. They need volume. They need they volume. They need volume in a
0: big way. And Desperately. The good, the
1: good thing is... You're set
0: up now, again, because of the fact that you're going to have a top 10 pick. and I like got nervous you were going to give like a
1: golf claps credit no, no, for, no. like their drafting record or something. No, no. Don't uh, worry. <laughs> I was going like, to be like, oh, no. I don't want to get mad today. You have the, So you're going to have at least
0: one really premium pick. And we can say, well, it's not as premium as it should be. Whatever. But you're still going to have a really good pick in the top 10. You've got the other first round pick. You are in a position, depending on how you manage it, to kind of thread the needle and add some really impressive quality at the top end and flesh out the quantity uh, of your prospect pool as well, which is huge for the Canucks. And that's not even getting beyond getting into what they what can they do from that perspective for next year as well. And I know you're not as high on the 2024 draft class and people in general aren't as high on it, but it's not a one year thing where they need to add volume. No. You know what I mean? Like that that needs to be the theme for this year. For next year, probably the year after as well, where you're really trying to go hard on adding a ton of guys over a two or three year span, and then you start to of start to separate, okay, and see who's who's hitting, who's progressing, who looks like they can help you, uh, and then you have more assets to actually deal with and build up your NHL team. But I think in the near future, it's, it's get as many picks as you can, take as many shots as you can, because like
1: as I just much, don't think
0: people talk about their way. drafting record, but it's not their like you can obviously have a problem with some of the players they've drafted, but the biggest thing is. They haven't made picks in the first or second rounds. Well, that's by
1: far the biggest deal with the prospect pool. And their drafting record. There's three. There's three decent years in there, 2017 through 2019. Mm-hmm. It's the rest of it that's it, not good, and it's the work since then. But even but from 2020 through 2022, they've also been
0: missing so many premium picks. Uh, like they have? they've had they have, but they're like that's the biggest thing. Uh... It's
1: not the. I'm biggest not saying thing. it
0: excuses the drafting record, but if you, sorry, it is obviously the biggest thing. You know how I'm a volume guy. You, you know cut, I agree with you. Yeah, like if you cut in half the picks you're making in the first two rounds, you're you you have to be one of the best
1: drafting teams ever to sure, to make up for but that. But we're also still living in a world where, like the Canucks did, um, and uh, no hindsight. This is zero hindsight stuff. This is stuff. Go search my Twitter feed on the day of. Is that going to be the new like trigger word for you? Well, it always hindsight. has been. We've spent 10 years of this being like that's hindsight. No. Um Yermo over sort of. Sta- um passing on Stankoven to take Klimovich, passing on uh that Ludwig Jansen kid to take he's a right-handed defenseman starred for Sweden at the U20s to take the um, that Gardner guy who's, you know, subpoint per game in the USHL although mm-hmm. the video bros love his work. He's like a big, really skilled guy. <laughs> the video bros. Well, the, the the video scouts, like Daniel G. <laughs> you know Daniel G? I do, yes. Yeah, Daniel G loves him. But, you know, um, I can't get too excited about a draft plus one sub point per game season in the USHL. So, anyway. Yeah, I mean, I think there's also been some tough work. And that's not to, like, I'm not judging LaKaramaki Le- yet, right? Or, no, or, no. Or you know the Elias Pettersson looks like a good hit, although there's also some really high upside guys that went after that. So whatever. I mean, too early, too early on 2021. But I think there's real signs that the Canucks have struggled massively since the draft or uh, the amateur department was reshuffled pretty significantly after Brackett's departure and yeah. actually before Brackett's departure. I'm not making I'm not making excuses for the
0: for the draft record, but the Brackett example is a good one, right? Because um, do you see the Scott wild? Wheeler had Do you see the Wild were number one? Right, and a lot of people are saying like, "Oh, well, Judd Brackett did it." Look at the number of picks they've made
1: recently. Totally, like they've
0: made so many picks, and so that's the key. It's like,
1: and again, there's sometimes. But this also, look at that... look at those defensemen. Like, it's not that they're even early guys. Like, if you go pull up their draft history and and compare it to like Team Canada camp invites or Team Canada U twenty, like, you know, they're getting guys late that end up competing for the U twenty team. <laughs> like, there, it's unbelievable. Well, I mean, sometimes like, this like a player idea... like a Damon Hunt. Who's like the right. Wild's fourth best defensive prospect and would be getting so much buzz if he were a Canucks pick. And I, I don't think he was like I don't think he was in the first 60 picks that year. Sometimes there's this
0: idea that if you're really good at drafting, which first of all, it's almost impossible to be over like a 10-year span, to be like demonstrably above average at drafting. It's so incredibly difficult. But there's this idea that if you're really, really good at it. You can like more liber- liberally trade away picks. It's actually the opposite. If you yeah. had an incredible advantage drafting, and maybe you think Judd Brackett does because he's that good at his job, you should do what Minnesota does and yep. acquire tons of draft picks so you can bring in even more talent
1: with the incredible okay. genius of your you, draft. You can also do the best job you want, and then you pick Marco Rossi and he gets, you know, sick in a way that demonstrably changes the ceiling. Al Murray is the best. Drafter of the last twenty years, and look at his record in fr- the first round, like Slater Cuckoo and Brett Connolly, and on and on. I mean, you know, yeah. I always remember when people used to think that because they
0: found Lidstrom, Datsuk, and Zetterberg where they did that, the Red Wings were like magic at drafting.
1: It's like, yeah, and then that, they pass how, did on <laughs> how did that turn right? out? Right, and then they yeah. take Zadina over Quinn Hughes. I mean, so yeah, no, it's um, it's tough. Like, it's look, it's it's a cra- it's a crapshoot, but you got to you got to you got to a mass volume particularly when you're a team that checks off just about zero of my checklist things um quick thoughts actually just because we we brought him up in the context of the the
0: draft discussion but getting back into the lineup now goals in three games i think a lot of people have been very heartened to see how he's performed what uh, what have you made of his uh, his returns after coming up from the AHL i mean i think the biggest thing is just it's nice to see him from what we can tell, playing with a lot of confidence again, which was not the case early in this season, in his sophomore year. He's been fine.
1: I has he really been that big a standout? I think there's been moments. I think. I think I he, actually think in the New Jersey I thought game he had a probably, really good game against the Devils, yeah. and other than that, I think he's been fine. I, I don't know. Is that not fair? Like, Yeah, fine. Not bad. No, so no he's absolutely like one not One
0: noticeably really strong game against New Jersey, I would say, and then... He's been, yeah, fine. Good. I would even say good. Not, like, incredible. Not great. I mean, again, like, the standout players last night were obviously Patterson first and foremost, and then Brock Besser. But it does, like, the process looks different for Vasily Podkolzin in just, you know, even... Okay, one of the three games, he was a major standout. That wasn't even happening that much uh, for him early in the season. So even just look at that ratio, it's like, okay, good. Something to build on uh, for
1: Pod Colson going forward. Like, like, I'm a big Pod Colson fan. Um, you know, I, I'm i a big Pod Colson fan, but at some point, you know, I do think we are going to reach, and I'm not saying we've reached it there, but it's something that I'm, like, eyeing at this point. Um. We're going to come up to a point where, you know, you're going to need to see more bottom-line production from him. You know, I mean, we're, we're now talking about a 21-year-old player, mm-hmm. so obviously still young, obviously still a ton of time yet, but played a bunch of games in the AHL, and the production wasn't leap off the page, right? 28 games with Abbotsford, 18 points. Uh, at the age of 21, that's decent. That's decent, but it's not above that, like, sort of classic .6- 0.7 bar that I that I kind of use to judge 21 through 23-year-old players for, for top nine upside in the American League. Um, you know, I know the tools are loud at the NHL. Like, his shot is amazing, but he's approaching his 100th game played. He'll, he'll hit it, and, and we're at 30 points, right? And so, you know, I've liked his game a lot, and I don't want to take anything away from that. I still think he can be a super unique piece but I also think that we need to be mindful of the fact that like his skills where I think he can be a really big difference maker is not as an offensive piece fundamentally. Like I think it can be as a two way guy. One thing I've liked the most about him actually is that he's been used a little bit on the penalty kill. They're starting to get him more reps in a penalty, penalty killing spot. And when you combine sort of the pace, the size the work rate, which is the best part about Pod Colson, right? He's got that high-end work rate, mm-hmm. and I think that's shown through here. Um, you know, that becomes a pretty interesting package, but as as sort of a middle six guy. Like, at some point, I think we need to see a little bit more offensively if we're going to look at him as a guy with, like, star potential. And, and I think the performance over the course of this season has sort of dented my confidence that we're going there. I still think he can maybe be, like, a second-line press type, Still a super unique profile. I still love the work rate and, and you know, his game. um, But, you know, I want to see more of those New, Jer- New Jersey Devils games. It's it's not like he's stacked three of those games on top of one another. Yeah. For me. That's the next step. He's right? kind of had one. Which it kind of felt like he started to do down the stretch last year. A little oh, bit, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. Well, after, coming out of last season, I was like, oh, my goodness. Could they have a affordable Zach Hyman on there? I mean, the, the way that I was talking about him last year, I'm just saying – Overall, and including his AHL stint, I don't know that I've seen progression, and that's fine. Progression's not always linear. We may yet get there, considering his toolkit. I'm just not, um, I'm not ready. I think in a lot of fronts to do the like Canucks redemption arcs down this. Like this season was so miserable. This team underperformed so significantly. Their competitive engine. Was misfiring so regularly that, like, I know there's appetite after what a three two and one record under Rick Tockett for people to be like, they're learning to play with structure, they're playing with identity. J T. Miller, what a great game at center, and it's like, how do you how do you possibly have the appetite for this? Like, how do you how do you possibly have the appetite for like the redemption of this team two weeks in Rick Tockett's tenure? Like. I've liked the start that talk it's made. I'm not taking away anything from that. I thought JT Miller had a pretty good game. A pretty good game yesterday against bottom six competition. Vasily Colson's had a nice week since returning. But it's like, this is all the start of something, maybe. But it's not like it's been glowing or dramatic. It doesn't obscure all that we've seen. All of the issues, all of this team's flaws. And I I saw you point out on Twitter, they've allowed 14 goals in their last three games. This is still a team that has only, at one point this season, and we're what, 50 games in now? Surrendered two goals or fewer in consecutive games. Like, I I mean, how low, how, how faint does this praise have to be? How low does this bar have to go? I will
0: tell you, we have to go right now. We okay. have to take a break. Sorry, enough, sorry. sorry to interrupt, but we no, got no a break because we got Dave Notice on the other side. Four Canucks I, I, general were manager. You, were you
1: like trying to signal
0: me to? Well, I, I kept thinking there's a natural break point coming, and then it never did. So <laughs> here we go. We're breaking Four Canucks stock coming up. Sports at six fifty. Welcome back to Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650, Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drantz, Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team. Avenue AvenueMachinery.ca, DouglasLakeEquipment.com. We are coming to you live from the Kintec studio. Kintec Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net, 650 650 is the dumbbar lumber text line and will be joined uh, momentarily by former Canucks general
1: manager also former Dave Maple Nones. Leafs general manager also former remember Maple the inbox manager. doesn't yes. like when you don't bring up that Burnaby's own Dave Nonis also worked for the Leafs a for some time long time Canucks executive why yes. is that why do people care at all i don't know this is like legit a know. Vancouver guy who was the Canucks general it's manager Canucks talk but you have to you have to also mention that ridiculous one of the most ridiculous I don't know why I'm airing some pre Dave Nonis grievances. <laughs> Coming to my defense. <laughs> Incredible. I was not expecting that. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> That's not like me. <laughs> well, we all need hope, Jamie. Yes. As somebody says, uh, it's called hope, Thomas, is what gets people, most people, by every day. I should try it.
1: <laughs> you should. You should try it. Well, no, I. The... Well, you can be hopeful. There's like, a there's... lot of ways that like there's a lot of things I would love to be hopeful about it's I I just I need to see it before I pretend it's there uh will we'll pick that up that conversation later but now joining
0: us on the line he is a former Canucks general manager former Maple Leafs general manager longtime executive in the NHL uh you hear him here regularly on the show Dave Nonis. Dave thanks as always for doing this how are you
4: I'm good, thanks, guys. How are you doing?
0: We're doing really well. Uh, you know, happy it's Friday, as always. And uh, we've uh, we've got a few games now to see Rick Tockett with the Canucks. Obviously, still very early days for him, but, you know, not necessarily specifically to the Canucks situation, but just in general, in your experience, when a new coach comes in in the middle of the season, how long does it take for them to really kind of mold the team into something resembling their identity?
4: Well, I think regardless of when they come in, it, it can take some time depending on on the style of play that they they want to employ. Mm-hmm. You know we've seen some coaches come in this year and have immediate impacts uh, where the team didn't miss a beat. you, know, you look at you know, obviously Boston, you know, if you look at Winnipeg and Dallas where they they kind of kicked off right away. But when you look at uh, Florida, um, you know mm-hmm. they changed not just some personnel, but they changed how they they wanted to play and they're just now starting to turn into a team that you know looks like they have a chance to, you know, make the playoffs. And if they do get in, do some damage. So it took them a long time, you know, mostly because of the style of play that they wanted to employ was vastly different than they were playing last year.
1: Dave, it's interesting because we often see a new coach bump, and and we're seeing a mini version of that in Vancouver with a three-two and one record. Uh, you know, nothing to write home about, but much better than what the Canucks had done in the first forty-five games, and yet you know, there's only been three practices. There's not a lot of systematic changes. Why is it that in mid-season you often get that sort of short-term adrenaline burst, even before some of the changes that ultimately a coach will put in place are, are fully installed?
4: Well, part of it is what you just said. I mean, the players do get a boost right away. So, you know, some of them are, are looking for a better opportunity. that uh, They think they can have a Uh, You know, a better chance of increasing their ice time or their production with a new coach. They want to prove themselves. I think change in general uh, does you know does generate some uh, some level of uh, increased effort. I don't think it's something they think about. I think it just happens. And you see when a player gets traded, whether or not he produces to your level of expectations, often they have a couple, two or three games where you notice that their energy level is much higher. So. I think part of it is, is there, the energy level is higher, the players, you know, they, they want to prove to the coaching staff that they belong, that they can be part of the future. Um, and, I, you know, I think that uh, even though it has been a short time, I think when the coaches come in, I, I'm, I'm sure that uh, Rick Talkett hasn't dramatically changed things right away. I think he'll probably try to ease things over the course of the rest of the season. But some of the changes he's put in, I think, is probably a bit invigorating for the players. And, and uh, you know, I think that that's one of the reasons why you're seeing a, a little bit of a bounce back.
1: When you're an executive of a team that you know you know is not making the playoffs, but you've still got a 30-game stretch and perhaps a new coach behind the bench, like wh- what do you look for? What do you hope to see from your players? How useful? can these 30 games be as a measuring stick or alternatively is it something you have to be kind of careful about not reading too much into it given the stakes
4: probably a little bit of both I mean the next 30 games for a team like like Vancouver is going to be really twofold it's going to be it's going to be a time to audition for some of these players it's not just about the rest of the season it's about how do they fit in there going forward are they part of the future do they do they will they and do they thrive under rick talk leadership and coaching style so for them it's going to be a bit of a of an audition and the the coaches and management are going to are going to take that into account they're going to be watching see how these players how they you know they rebound and how they react to the changes that the coaching staff's going to put in uh the second part of of that is from the coaching standpoint um and the management standpoint you want to see which players are going to embrace the style that you're going to play. What kind of growth do you get over the next 30 games? You know, are the young players going to continue to improve? Are the special teams going to, you know, get better, particularly the penalty killing? Those are the things that they're going to look at. It's not really going to be about wins and losses for for teams that are out of the playoffs that uh, are, you know, going into the next last 30 games of the season. It's going to be about measuring what you have and what you think you have going forward.
0: One of the other things we we often see with a new coach is you know certain players will move up the lineup and take on a bigger role, and other guys will uh, will fall out of favor a little bit. From a management perspective, how much can it does it change your your view and maybe your plans for the future of a player when they either start having a lot more success and playing a bigger role uh, with a new coach, or the opposite? Maybe they're they're not quite enjoying the responsibility that they did previously.
4: Well, you know. I... I I always spoke to the coaching staff pretty much every day just to get their thoughts on how things were going. I gave them my thoughts. I'm sure that's going on, you know, in Vancouver, you are trying to see where, where players fit, which roles that they might be able to embrace. Uh, you don't, I don't think you're ever telling the coach who to play. I want to, you know, I want to see these two, but you're having conversations to try to figure out what you might have in, in terms of, you know, line combinations of, of D pairs uh, going forward. So they're definitely doing that right now. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of evaluation going on. You know, there's going to be a lot of teaching going on, but the evaluation is going to be significant because if you know, obviously they've made the statement that they want to change the way the team is put together. They made a big step, you know, with uh, the Horvat deal, um, and I, you know, I think that they're going to look and see what they have and what other changes they feel is going to make the team better going forward. So there's a, there's a lot of evaluation that's going to happen. You know, and I think people expect well, the new coach came in, let's see if this thing turns around immediately. It doesn't work that way. You know, I think there's, a, there's going to be steps, and you know, I don't know Rick talker, but from, from what I understand, he's a process-driven coach, and that's going to be a big part of it. He, he wants to put the process in uh, that will lead them to have long-term success. It's not about winning 20 of the next 30 games.
1: Dave, it's a pretty amazing season from a trade market perspective, right? It, it, before yesterday, there would only been three trades in the entire NHL with um, more than $2 million in cumulative, like total, NHL-level cap <laughs> commitments involved. Uh, and then we get the Tarasenko deal, and even there, the Blues eat 50% of, of the biggest salary in the deal to make it work. Are, are you expecting sort of this flat cap paralysis, is what I've been describing it as, to shape what we see between now and the deadline? Could it be a quieter deadline than what we've seen in previous years?
4: Um, I don't think it'll be quieter, but I, I do think what you mentioned is going to be the norm. Uh, I think eating salary is the way deals are to get done. It's just not enough cap space around the league for, for teams to take on full salaries, particularly on, you know, for players that, that make it a significant amount of money. So, you know, teams that haven't used up all their retentions, you know, they're probably, if, if they're sellers, they're going to be using them all up if they're going to be moving some players. So I think that's the way deals are going to get done. The, the thing that's different this year that I, you know, I didn't really expect is the deals getting done this far ahead of the deadline. Mm. And I think that, you know, what what's happening there is teams are, are putting their players out. Sellers are putting their players out. This is what we're looking for. Uh, and the first team that steps up is going to do it. I think that when you look at you know the number of, of buyers, um, both uh, you know the, the New York Rangers and the New York Islanders said, "Listen, we're either going to pay the price that they're asking, whether you think that price is fair or not, you can debate it, um, or there's a good chance we're not going to get any of them." You know, I know that yesterday people were saying, "Well, you know, I thought that the Rangers were going to be in on Kane, or, or are they going to be in on Timo Meyer?" W- what happened? They looked at the you know what the prices were going to be this is a deal i can execute standing there with my hat in my hand i better do it right now And so i, I you know, we've seen two pretty guys early on you know that may continue the deadline still will be busy but a lot of the big names may be off the board
1: david's interesting in the media how there's this rush to declare winners and losers after every trade Uh, you're familiar with this we do it we have no shame Uh, we're happy to do it it's the job that's what fans want they want to declare an instant winner and an instant loser and yet the dynamic at the deadline is so interesting to me because there's really only one team that's going to win the cup that's going to look back at making a win now move and be able to say like hey that paid off it feels like the you're, you're pretty safe to declare most of the sellers winners. And yet that's kind of not a fair way of, of analyzing it. How, how do you think about this? How did you think about it when you were an executive?
4: It, it, really, it depends where your team is at, you know, there's different reasons for the deadline. Uh, I look at, you know, Seattle or New Jersey, for example, New Jersey's, you know, they're, they're, I think they're in the playoffs given where they sit right now. They're playing very well despite having Hughes injury. But they've been out for a long time, so if if they were to spend some capital to make sure they get in and maybe win around, that puts a lot of faith back into the marketplace. It puts a lot of faith back into your, your players. Uh, you know, if if Seattle spent something to try to make sure they got in, or Buffalo, who's been out for a long time, even if they don't go far, I get that. I think that there's there's val- there's some value in that. Now you could overpay and make that a stupid decision too. But to spend some capital to get something that might help you is, is okay. Um, but as you, you said, only one team is going to win the cup. And we're going to look back in the summer and, and see a number of these trades didn't make any sense, uh, either short or long-term. If you have a legitimate chance of winning, uh, I don't see any anything wrong with trying to go for it while your window is open. I mean, that's that's what your kind of responsibility is. It's when your window really isn't that far open and you still do it. Um, mm-hmm. the, the second part is you have to realize where your team is at. You know, you, obviously, you know, you've been in Vancouver a long time and you know, we got beat by the Anaheim Ducks who went on to win the Stanley cup and that trade deadline, their, their biggest. And I think their only acquisition was Brad May. Now, I, I like Brad May. Good, good person worked hard, but, it wasn't exactly something that moved the needle, but the team was good enough that they just needed a piece that fit. They didn't need, you know, they didn't need a, a difference maker. They already had those players in Pronger and Niedermeyer. So you have to measure where your team is at and then determine you know, how much you actually want to spend.
0: We're talking to Dave Nonis, former Canucks general manager here on Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650. And Dave, you know, three weeks out from the trade deadline, I love this time of year. I know a lot of fans and our listeners love it too because there's so much happening. There's so much kind of in the news. You start to see some early moves. I know a GM, an executive, there's not really a lot of downtime on the calendar, but just give 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 us a sense of what this time frame leading up to the deadline is like, how busy, how active it is for a general manager.
4: It's pretty busy and pretty active whether you're a seller or a buyer I mean if you're a seller you're, you're trying to drum up you know, as, as much interest as you can and build a marketplace that may not be there uh, two or three weeks out you're trying to you're trying to generate that interest uh, and, and maximize your return on on your players that you're selling um, you, you have to set a price that you think is fair it is a range in there you, you hope to hit it uh, if you have to take a step back, one step, you do it. If you can get more, than you, then that's great. But you set a range and you you go about trying to generate as much interest. If if you're in the buying mode, you know, you have to, again, you set the price as well, but you look around you and see what's happening. And, and often you make a determination is that price is very steep. If I want it in this, that's what it is going to take. You know, I, I think if you look at what was paid yesterday, it's a pretty good price. To, I think both teams did well given where they're at. Uh, the Rangers had an extra first round. They got a very good player. I think they're you know they could be a dangerous team in the playoffs. But Doug Armstrong did pretty well as well. He got a you know he got assets that he needs to rebuild that team. So both teams will set the price, um, and you start you're on the phone a lot. You're trying to maneuver either not paying as much as they're asking or making teams pay more than they want. And as it comes down to the last seven days, eight days generally. I mean now it seems to be going a little earlier. Uh, that's when the pressure really ratchets up.
0: You know, we had a listener text in, Dave, that wanted to just ask you how long it typically takes for a deal to come together, kind of from first contact between two teams where a player's name comes up to, you know, actually consummating and finalizing the deal. And, you know, I guess I would also add to that, what what's the kind of, what's what's the factor that can push a team to decide, okay, we've been having these discussions, now we're ready to step up and actually get serious and make this deal?
4: Yeah, the big deals take a little little bit of time. mean my last year in in Toronto, uh, you know, I knew that we were going to miss. I was trying to in the sell mode to try to rebuild the the franchise in terms of of the reserve list, and we were looking to trade you know, as many good players as we had that year. We had Cody Franson and Mike Santorelli. Cody had a, a really good year, um, and uh, you know, I was talking to number teams, but I had Nashville that was very interested early on. So it took four or five weeks to get that deal done. And it wasn't just done by the phone. If, you're, you know, if you want to get a deal done, I always felt that it was often useful to be face-to-face. So you know, on at least two occasions, I went to Nashville and met with them and tried to you know, persuade them to pay the price that I was asking. So some of the deals that happen late in the day, you, know, you see a depth player get added, that can happen quickly. That, that can happen the day of or the day before. Uh, the deadline. But the ones of significance, they're they're weeks in the making. Um, And it's just when you want to pull the trigger and whether it makes sense for both the seller and the buyer.
1: Dave, what's the tensest moment you've ever had at the deadline? Just like, I know this is putting you on the spot and and a tough one, but... Is there a moment you can remember that was particularly stressful or, or where there was a particular amount of pressure or, frankly, a, a moment that seemed like it was and then had a, a funny outcome? Something like that that you remember from the war room on deadline day, just to give our listeners a sense of what it's actually like for the top executives making the deals that we're all excited to analyze and, and read about.
4: Well, there's two that are, that come to mind and, and they're not really, it's not putting me on the spot. <laughs> one was trying to replace the, replace the the um, the pieces when Todd Bertuzzi was suspended, right. so we, you know that's when we only had a you know, short short amount of time to try to put some players in there that we thought could help us because we were having a pretty good year and, and you know I thought we had a, a chance to move on. So that was a tense one for for us. Uh, the other one for me was was uh, in Toronto when we had R- Roberto Luongo. Mm-hmm. available to us i mean obviously he would have helped us dramatically i think we would have beat boston and moved on to the second round um but the fact was is that by taking on that contract it would have it would have damaged the franchise going forward and i couldn't do it so my heart wanted to do it um badly <laughs> i thought it was, would have been great for our team but my, my head wouldn't let me execute the, the deal
1: did you ever look back on that one, think, considering how long Luongo remained effective? I mean, guy was still 920 and at the age of 40. I don't think anyone would have expected that in, what, 2013, when you guys got deep into talks and he got pulled off the ice for practice. But did you ever regard that one in 2020 when he was still uh, 920 over 50 games and think, ah, eh, that guy held up?
4: Yeah, no question. I, I think that you know, he, he played... He played a lot better and a lot longer than I, I thought he would. Um, you know, given how much he played and how hard he worked. Uh, but even with that said, there still was a penalty at the end, mm. and um, you know, it, it it still would have been something that um, would have impacted the franchise. I mean, listen, if if there was no worry about Roberto um, his contract, then he would have been traded well before the deadline. Uh, it just it was one where everyone looked at it and just said, if this doesn't go well. We're going to be in in a lot of trouble for a long time.
0: How close did you come to to making the move?
4: Uh, very close. Yeah, I, that's the one where I, I I left the office, walked around the block, and <laughs> tried to talk myself in or out of it. But it was yeah, that was very close to to uh, to come to fruition. No question.
0: Dave, really appreciate it the insight and also some of the stories that uh, I know our listeners are really going to enjoy as well. Thanks for doing this. We'll chat again next week.
4: Thanks you guys. Take care.
0: That is uh, Dave Donis, former Canucks general manager, and relevant former Leafs general manager. In the context of that last story, there, hundred percent, and uh,
1: fascinating, very, very relevant. That's
0: one of like the the great like tense for him, tense for people watching well, the trade deadline unfold
1: and everything. Because Longo well. got pulled off guys for practice, right, and then gave the "my contract sucks" press conference. One of the one of the most. Amazing moments, I think, in the history of this franchise, frankly, was the that two hours. Now we're gonna go for break, right? So we're gonna Yeah, we got a minute here. Should we oh well I don't have anything to say, I just want to make a oh. joke about going for break. Can I make that? <laughs> okay, sure. Can we go for yeah. break or no? Do I need to drag the pot? No, no, no. You can we can go to break. Okay. It's just Dimitri next, so we got flexibility. Just Dimitri. Um no, I was just gonna say we let's uh let's go take a walk around the block and talk ourselves <laughs> in or out of it. Yes. Clear our minds. I'm legitimately going to steal that. Um, like I could use that moment of reflection, sober reflection um, more uh, particularly before I, I make a rant. So I'm going to steal Dave Nonis's, um method of, of processing high stakes. situations. It's a great story. Uh, it was a
0: great story from uh, Dave Nones. Very much enjoyed it. Up next, our pal Dimitri Filipovich from the hockey PDO cast here on Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. It's Jamie Dodd. It's Thomas Stratton. It's the final segment of the week. Always a thrill. We're live from the Kintech studio and joining us in studio, as usual, our pal from the Hockey Video cast, Dmitri Filipovich. Dimitri, what's going on,
3: man? Uh, I'm excited to join you guys. You're
0: rocking some sweet uh, Tage Thompson swag i rocking a Tage Thompson, Thompson tea. I yeah, like that's it. That's right,
3: yeah. Well,
0: you know. It looks as good as his game does right now.
3: Well, our Sabres, you know.
1: You know what I'm talking about, Tom, right? I do, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our Sabres and uh, and our Devils, but not our Ducks. No, well, no. Two for three ain't bad. Two for three ain't bad. I don't bad. know. I think the Ducks count as like negative two, not <laughs> sure. just negative
0: one. Yeah, they're really rare, bad.
1: really, really, they're, really bad. You know what? The Ducks, though, are the new, I'm going to pick them to be way better next year team, and it's going to take them three years to get there, yep. and then I'm going to declare victories if I wasn't wrong four times about it. Or
0: them. you'll do the thing where it's like, I'm done with the Ducks. I'm not going to predict them to improve this year. And then they'll improve that year. You know what I mean? People will finally be like, I'm not getting fooled again. And then that's the year that they go on this run. You know
1: what, though? I feel like the way up for NHL teams involves this. Like, remember the Carolina Hurricanes did this for years, where it was like the Carolina Hurricanes are going to be good this year. And then they weren't year after year. They they had like a five-year stretch where they were like the designated team that that was true about. Then the Devils did it over the last three years. And I think the Ducks are next even Buffalo has had a little bit of that recently like no. they've had the hot starts it's not yeah, quite the, the starts, same yeah. but it's been like oh what's cooking in Buffalo now and then they just immediately fall flat i've been fading the i've been fading the sabers up until this summer this summer was the first time where i thought they've done enough smart things that this might work
0: uh so we'll uh We'll get into some Super Bowl talk at some point here, I'm sure,
1: throughout the course of this segment. I that's
3: why you guys brought me in, Super Bowl preview. <laughs> yeah,
0: big Super Bowl preview here uh, on Canucks Talk. But we should talk, uh, We should start looking ahead. It's not the best week for it because they play the Rangers, who we just saw, yep. although it'll be with Tarasenko now next mm. week. Uh, and they start with a home-and-home set against the Detroit Red Wings. I know you just did uh, a deep dive on the Red Wings this week on the PDO cast, so... And it's interesting because like they're one of those teams where people are kind of saying, you know, with the moves they made and some of the young talent blossoming in the league, like, hey, this is a the year they're going to take a big step forward. And yep. the point total is better, but it also kind of feels a little underwhelming to me in some ways.
3: Yeah, they tried to speed up the process and understandably so, like, you could argue they're two best players, Dylan Larkin notwithstanding, with Sanding, although he's making like $6 million or something himself, and cider and Raymond are both on their ELCs. Mm. So I understand why they were like, all right, well, let's use those cap savings to go out and bring in you know, Billy Huso and Ned and give him a contract, pay uh, Andrew Kopp, David Perron, Ben Chirot to a lesser extent. I don't understand that one at all. But uh, <laughs> it, it makes sense that they were like, all right, let's try to build a competitive environment. Let's have a better sense of what we have here and take advantage of this. So I don't mind that at all. But it's a kind of like a cautionary tale in terms of yeah. – trying to put the card before the well, horse, Well, it ties in a little to right? what we were just talking about, yeah.
0: right? We always think these teams yeah. are on the cusp, and, like, I think you could point to Ottawa as another team, right? Like, oh, Ottawa, look, what, look out, they won the summer, and it's actually tougher than that. I mean, how difficult is it, not just for us, but for, like,
3: Steve Iserman to really exactly uh, lock down when the team is ready to take that next step? Really tough, and especially in that Atlantic division, right? I think people thought that the, the Bruins might take a bit of a step back this year, and they yes. obviously clearly haven't. The Lightning and the Leafs are really good. If it, it's interesting because this would be the year to make that leap, you'd think, right? Because the Panthers have taken a big step mm. back. The Senators have similarly disappointed in terms of the offseason hype they had. And so there has been a bit of an opening there, and still the Red Wings haven't really been able to, to take advantage of that. So I don't know. It's it's a better team than last year, but I think based on how much they spent to accomplish it, I think it's fair to be a bit disappointed by the results.
1: With, so, has Moritz Sider, in your view, built on what he accomplished last year, particularly in his minutes away from Ben Chirot? In his minutes away from... That was a
3: great ending. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. You had me in the first half there. Um, the start of the year was a disaster with Ben Chirot. Yeah. And I think predictably so of anyone that's actually watched Ben Chirot play the past couple of years. They See, take I away. was
1: always told that you had to watch Ben Chirot play in building every game to really understand I, you, why you, he wasn't as bad as I thought he you was. You need Ben Chirot ISO cam. That's honestly what people would would tell me Over the years. Like, if you haven't watched him play. Oh, the number of times this guy just subtly cross-checks someone in the back and doesn't get called for it. Until he does.
3: Um, No. They took him away from Ben Chirot. They paired him with Jake Wallman, of all people. And he has absolutely erupted and looks much more like the rookie version that he was. And so I think he has built on it. It's very promising that this chemistry with Wallman has resulted in sort of this, like, upward trajectory for him.
1: Has any other player, can you think of any other player that within a six-month span was involved in the two worst transactions of a calendar year. <laughs> it's tough.
3: Yeah. Whoa, I can. Okay. J.T. Miller not being traded and then being extended. Ooh.
1: Although I guess that's kind of one transaction. Is that is that worse than trading a but, possible lottery? Yeah. Pick unfor- I don't then... know if we
3: can tr- treat the
0: absence of a transaction as a transaction. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, so technically
1: escapes right. Escapes on a technicality. Technically right is the best type of right <laughs> to be. That's true. That's true. No, I mean, that's a disaster,
3: especially like Florida's making a bit of a surge here and I think they still have an outside shot at making sure that that pick doesn't wind up being a premium one but it's teetering on the edge of disaster definitely and I just don't I just don't I do not get the bench rot stuff No me neither it's just it's absolutely insane to me like he's just not a good hockey player I don't know, just, just hitting people slightly <laughs> illegally and getting away with it pretty often. It does It does
0: feel kind of like well because good Branson got the four by four too, right? And it feels like yeah. kind of like the last gasp of that style of defenseman where you're you're getting by on reputation and physicality and all that, but it's not working out so well. Yeah. <laughs> Cap it in the term and all that yeah. uh, doesn't look so great. Um you mentioned Jake Wallman. Mm-hmm. I feel like his like, Q rating has gone through the roof oh, this yeah. year. How much of that is him? How much of that is him playing with Mo Sider on the blue line? A little bit
3: of both, certainly. I mean, at the same time, though, you watch him play, and it's it's a very um, aesthetically pleasing skill set. Like He's very elusive, mm-hmm. very smooth skater, um, makes good decisions with the puck, does a lot of like that stuff around the blue line where he navigates and makes someone's miss and then gets the puck to open space as opposed to panicking and shooting into someone's shin pads. So you watch him play, and it's like, It's kind of bizarre because I know that he was an interesting prospect coming up and never really made it with the Blues, but he's going to be a 27-year-old UFA this summer with like 100-something games to his name at this level. And you watch him play and you're like, if you didn't know any better, you could be convinced that he was like a legitimate top-pairing defenseman just based on the past 20 games he's played. And so I'm I'm very curious to see how the Red Wings navigate that in terms of whether – they totally buy it and commit to him with a big contract or whether they trade him at the deadline or whether they kind of like bridge him in a way I'm I'm, it could go any way really
0: what do they do with Dylan Larkin because they made all these moves to try to get better there's talk you know we know Eisenman really tough negotiators sets his price doesn't want to go over it so theoretically there's a possibility they could trade him but it Mm -hmm. just seems they're in a really tough spot because if you trade him you've got such a massive hole at the top of your lineup for a team that was supposedly done being bad and wanted to try to compete for the playoffs i don't know how you replace that and yet i don't know if they're going to meet his asking price either for what it's going to take to get him signed
3: yeah it would definitely represent a step back for them if they certainly if they lost him for nothing in free agency this summer but even if they traded him for futures it's it would be a bit of a strange development i mean he's like a michigan guy he he's like telegraphing very clearly if i was (laughs) his agent i'd be like can you like Tone down it down a little, a little bit, bit about like, how much you love it. <laughs> don't like it's okay. There's other states. There's other teams. You don't you know you don't have to keep talking about how you're from Michigan. But he clearly wants to be there. Tom's been on this one since the beginning. Like, I, like you were at the start of the season. You were like, I don't know. Watch for this because if I know Steve Eiserman, he's gonna like draw a very hard line here and then be comfortable
1: taking this to like the final day. The basically. absolute. Well, he's gonna wait him out, right? Like that's what he does. Yeah. And I mean, the the key. So let me do my Steve Eiserman spiel actually because. I had a rant yesterday, Jamie, about how I'm dogmatic about going long on second contracts. Mm -hmm. And someone pointed out the Tampa Bay Lightning. Now, this is an example that I've used a million times. The Tampa Bay Lightning have effectively created their own internal version of restricted free agency that lasts six years in a world where the lines are blurring between second contracts and UFA. And so the way that they did it, though, is crucial because it's almost irreplicable. And it's why I don't cite it as a model. But they waited out Steve Stamkos. There was only one leak that was even remotely like close to approximating anything and it was like a Bob McKenzie thing that was like neither side will talk but I think this and it was somewhat close to it. So it's like the most respected guy got something small and that was it throughout the entire process. They let Steve Stamkos go to Toronto and meet with like the CEO of Canadian Tire and the mayor of Toronto, they like they were willing to go that far. Yeah. And then ultimately Stephen Stamkos, off put by the pitch. <laughs> Sorry, Lou. Came back and, and yeah. signed with them for a, a deal that was at the time like well below market, right? Like nine and a half million times eight. He probably makes an extra 10 million at least if he goes to anywhere else. And two days later, Hedman's done. And from then on, they had this weapon that they used to grind down everybody. Kucherov signs the bridge. And, and it's not just that they sign the bridge. They also get extended for max term the day they become eligible. It takes a lot of cojones to let your best player get that far down the road.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: But Iserman's done it before. And, I, I mean, I, I told you early in the year. And, I, I mean, I think he'll do it again. I wonder if they draw up... Like the second bridge contract and then
3: the third long term contract, and they like present both at the same time <laughs> and they're like, sign this first one and this other one you can keep in your back pocket. Like well, it's not even a it's not even a handshake, it's like literally like I, visualizing it.
1: I'm sure I'm sure it's not quite that specific, yeah, but I a, also yeah. don't think it's that far off. Yeah. You know, like it's like this is how we're gonna do business here. Well, especially once you've done it once or twice, yeah. right? And then it's
0: really easy. It's not abstract then. It's like you see, you know, you know this guy. Go He's, talk to him about how it worked, we, right?
1: We paid Cooch, we paid Vasilevsky. But you, you, you give us three years, and then we give you. And you have to be right in your window to do it, too. Like, you have to be taking advantage. Like, the all-time all, all time regular season was the last year of Kucherov's bridge, right? Mm-hmm. Then the um, first cup win was the last year of Vasilevsky's bridge. And then all three finals appearances are, are points bridge. And it's like, you need that level of success yep. for bridging those players to even be worth it. You also,
3: like, I, I I'm... I understand optically it kind of looks bad, like that you you're haggling over a couple hundred thousand dollars per year with your captain. But I think as much as I like Dylan Larkin as a player, if you're going to compete for a Stanley Cup, he probably will not be your best skater, right? Right. And so at some point you do have to draw a hard line in the sense that like you can't be like, well, because we like him and he's from Michigan, yeah. we're going to give him nine point five per. Because that really limits your, like, flexibility and ceiling moving forward. You almost have to acknowledge, like, we want to keep you, but it needs to be at a figure that makes sense for what we're trying to build. So um, I, I think it'll ultimately get done. Like, I can't see Larkin playing for anyone else, especially this season.
1: Are, are they... Detroit doesn't really have a blue-chip player coming, other than Edvinson, Edvinson, I guess. yeah. But Edvinson's a big defensive defenseman.
3: Yes. I mean... Yeah, I mean, I think he's got he's got some certainly some some
1: skill. Like, I I wouldn't short sell him that way. But I've I've got a I've got a long term Edvinson fade on. So yeah, I mean, do they have enough? Like, do they have enough for this version of the Iser plan to to get pulled off? Because it feels like they spent a lot in unrestricted free agency, aren't bad enough this year, and don't have enough on the come to sort of do the the level up as quickly as perhaps Iserman managed in Tampa Bay.
3: Maybe not. Maybe they misplayed it, but I will say they've made forty draft picks over the past four years. And I believe fourteen of them were top two rounds. And that's how you execute a rebuild. Like I think that 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 sure. is a model to replicate if you're like look if you're like the Canucks for example, right? Where Just pulling a team out of thin air. Yeah, I don't know where, <laughs> you know, a, a team that could use a game plan like that. Like, it it ultimately is pretty easy to tear everything down and strip everything bare, and then it's much tougher to build it back up in a smart way. So we're kind of seeing some of those challenges in Detroit. But when Eiserman came in, I mean, what Kenny Holland left behind was absolutely barren, right? And what they did is a fantastic job of leveraging all the available cap space they had. Like, remember, they took on the last year of Mm -hmm. Mark Stahl's deal, got a free second-round pick for it, jumped in on the David Savard trade to Tampa Bay the year they won the Cup, and got, like, a free fourth-rounder out of it just basically for, like, giving them... 25% money, basically, yeah, yeah. And so, like, they were doing all this stuff, and that's exactly what you need to do. Now, capitalizing on it and building on it moving forward is a different thing, but I think that part of the model especially, like, is something definitely to pay attention to. Well, and
0: those are, they're not easy because you have to, we talked to Dave Notice about this just in the last segment, or Jonathan Wall, I guess, earlier, but you have to get everyone in the organization buying in, including the owner. So I don't want to say it's easy to do that. But once you have that buy-in, it's okay. You're looking for those opportunities, and it's relatively straightforward. Like the Dylan Larkin decision, that's a really, really, really tough decision to all of a sudden draw a line in the sand. And if you stick to that line in the sand, you might be much less competitive going forward. Like that's where the rubber really hits the road on taking that next step yep. uh, up the standings.
1: Uh, I want to move on. We're, we're talking to. There's to only me. one other team, and the yeah.
0: Canucks just saw them. Yeah, but I want to talk. They, they traded for Vladimir Tarasenko. Get get Dim's thoughts quickly. Okay. What you got? Something else in the you red? Know,
1: race? you know, Carl some diamond Super Bowl, man. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, I want to talk.
0: We don't, we don't want to go to the Super Bowl now. That's true. We got ten minutes left. Yeah, right. ten minutes on the Super Bowl. <laughs> all right. Yeah, let's. We just can. No, 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 hold on. Yeah, Tarasenko to the Rangers. Yeah. What do you think? I like it. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: Come on, we have to make time for that
3: gold Man, question. This answer. is
1: this is straight up Mike Wallace quality interviewing <laughs> between you and I, bud.
3: I love that. No, I love hanging with you guys. Um, I'm more optimistic on it than Tom is. I know Tom. Tom really just likes to fade everything you're you're a big zagger when people are zigging
1: well i know i just think that doug armstrong like no, he did well he did really well considering the value of wingers and the fact that tarasenko hasn't been that good this year yeah and had a full no trade like i just i'm shocked that he was able to get a first and a fourth although i will say that,
3: that who who was it andy strickland who did the tweet where it was like this is very comparable to the horbat return which was it was not.
1: oh no 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 but it was better the way i view it is he beat the return that Boston paid for Taylor Hall. Of course. And that to me is like the best comp for where Tarasenko is based on his production this season and his two way impact, which has fallen off just like Taylor Hall's had. Yeah. You know, it's the, like, it's not fair to compare the price that Arizona paid to New Jersey. Mm-hmm. The price is Hall signed the one year deal in Buffalo. Didn't play that well. They got uh, what uh a second in Bjork and the, and the blues blew that out of the water. To me, that's phenomenal considering I don't like Tarasenko as much as I liked Hall then. Yeah, I saw a lot of people being like, "Wow, Vlad Terezynko, that's all you got," and
3: it's like, how many people were lining up for a 31 year old rental winger with 10 goals this season? Like, I, I think the name brand value versus what you're actually getting at this point does not line up. So, I
1: like the return quite a bit for St. Louis. But you also like the fit for the range.
3: Well, I just like him. I like the idea of him playing with Panarin. Right? Like part of he's clearly been in a decline over the past couple of years, and, and part of it has been injury related. But we saw him succeed with Robert Thomas last year, where Thomas was basically just serving the puck on a silver platter to him, and I think Panarin's going to be able to replicate a lot of that. So I don't want to fade it in the sense that I think he'll score quite a few goals down the stretch and maybe even into the postseason, and so I don't want to be like completely negative on it, but I think tempering expectations is important.
1: Zbanejad, Panarin, Tarasenko, Mm -hmm. Kreider, Trocek, VC, the kid line. So Lafreniere, Hedl, Kako, Kako. Do the Rangers have enough two-way talent up front? Yeah, there's still, like, like, still like there's still a
3: forward short.
1: There there's no defensive ace among that group. Barkley Goodrow? But <laughs> Barkley Goodrow's their best two way forward, probably. <laughs> In terms of his defensive ability. Yeah, but when you say two way, that includes the the, the one way sure. going Fine. forward okay. and, and I'm being saying, really good at it. I'm <laughs> just saying, I don't know that there's enough like defensive conscience yeah. on that team, considering what they're likely to bump into in the metro, with players like Barkov and Aho, and you know, and then further down the line, Bergeron, Matthews, and company. Like, I don't know. I just don't. I don't see the two way heft. Yeah, but the blue that the roster. blue
3: line's really good. I really like the
1: blue line. I agree. Wait, with, why, why, I why agree why with Dimitri. The blue line's good.
3: Miller is a superstar. Wow, I yeah. disagree with that. Okay, Miller is awesome. He's I, really I good. I highly recommend He Washington. had a
1: great game against the Canucks, but he's I mean, had lots of great games this year. That was not even in his top 20 games this
3: season. I know he had the three assists, but let yeah. He's well, really he's really good. It's funny that remember when when people were like, "Oh, maybe the Canucks can get get him for JT Miller?" Yeah, that's that's not going to happen. That, um that was never going to happen. No. But I, he's really I don't know. good. He's really good. Adam Fox is having a better season than he had when he won the Norris. But Adam Fox too is offensive. I understand, but what I'm saying is they're one of the best counter-attacking teams in the league, right? So I, I think being bad defensively isn't necessarily a disaster when you have Igor Shesterkin in the net, as long as you can hold up just a little bit. Every time they get the puck, they're going to get a scoring chance out of their way.
1: I've got I, second year in a row. I am readying my big time New York Rangers no, fade. I think they're the better playoffs. this year than they were last year. I think so too. Yeah, but that's they made the Eastern. You saying the Eastern Conference finalist is better than last year? People are going to be like, he thinks they're a contender. Well,
3: well I think they're going to beat Carolina in round two again, probably.
1: Yeah, no, I'll... I, Actually, I, no, I, will... I think
3: they'll probably lose to the Devils in round one, so...
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I, I think the Devils are materially better, and I think the Carolina Hurricanes are materially better. Yeah. All right, we're going to do
0: our Super Bowl MVP draft here. And we should note, we drafted Super Bowl teams to win the Super Bowl a little while and ago. And I'm eliminated. So is already eliminated. So,
1: I, so the, as a I've, result... I've got
0: the Chiefs. Dim has the Eagles.
1: So. As a result, I pick third. Yes. And also, like, you know, I had the Niners. It, I, I, I was... Heavy on the Niners that Sunday, yeah. but they ended up down to a running back taking snaps. Like whatever, I, I don't feel just like I, I don't feel like I'm I blew the saying. draft. I got uh, l- unlucky. I'll start it off. Uh, I will take Patrick Mahomes mm. first overall to be Super Bowl MVP. And and for our friends that play now sports, I will tell everyone plus one twenty five.
3: Ah, <sighs> see, like I feel like I just have to take Jalen Hurts here a second. You definitely do. Bad value. I really wish I could trade it for third and fourth.
1: <laughs> plus one thirty. Yeah. So you want a I trade? Hmm? You want to trade. No chance. No, because okay. uh, I mean the, I think that there's a realistic possibility that if the Eagles win, Jalen Hurts, who looked not great against the 49ers and appears to still be banged up, is not the MVP. I think there's a real chance that he's not the MVP. And in a world where that happens, I so I, you know I need to get the volume of Eagles position players. Are you gonna there. take Sanders and Gainwell here? No, I'm not taking Gainwell. I'm am, I'm am going to sprinkle some money on Gainwell, although he's down to plus 6000. And I get so Boston Scott on the way back. Too many too many people are too many people are taking Gainwell, unfortunately Can before I laid Money down. Super Bowl down. MVP Kenneth Gainwell. Uh, if they were playing the Giants, I I'd, I'd like Boston Scott's chances. But... <laughs> yeah. Um I'm going to take Miles Sanders plus 2800. And I'm going to take Hassan Reddick plus 2800. Yeah. Hassan Reddick's a good pick.
3: No, it's back to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, I think I have to take Travis Kelsey here.
1: Yeah, that guy Ooh. has the third best odds, yeah. plus 1,400. Yeah. For everybody, I took two plus well, two we're, we're not drafting
3: based on value. No, I'm we're drafting, I'm drafting based based odds so. neutral. Yeah. But
1: for the most part, you took the favorite. You yeah. took the second favorite. Yeah. I then went off a little bit exotic, but with strategy. And then you took the third favorite. Yes. So this is shaping up to be like all our other drafts where I screwed up. <laughs> yes, where you outthink yourself. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you took Kelsey.
0: I'm yeah. gonna take uh, AJ Brown. Yeah, I just he's really good, yeah, and yeah. as you said, fourth best. Hurts might job. not get the respect that some of, some of the uh, other guys do. So it's me again. Mm-hmm. So I'll take AJ Brown. This is where it gets tricky. I'm gonna go way off the board. I'm gonna take Darius Slay. Oh, um, I hate that pick because Terrible I don't job. like any of the other picks. But if he gets Turnover makes a big play, defensive touchdown, picks yep. off Mahomes, something like that, puts himself in the running. Really bad.
1: Where <laughs> <Okay. laughs> I, I already had a bunch of good picks stockpiled, so I could afford to be a little off the board on that one. Fair enough.
3: All right, I'll go uh, Devonta Smith.
1: Yeah, that's the right pick. And so I close this out with one last pick. I think I've got to go Chris Jones. That's a good pick. Yeah, I like that. So, like, I'm hedging a little bit. I've got the Eagle. I need the Eagles to win and not Hurts to get it. And then I'm going to take a Chiefs. I'm a, I've also now hedged. I've also got the Chiefs win. A crazy low-scoring defensive battle game script will pay off. Chris Jones. The Kelsey pick was a bad pick by me because I just see no way that Kelsey wins. That's my, not credited to Mahomes. Exactly. If the, I think. I think there's no way Mahomes he'd have to have win like he like, I agree with you, right? Actually, unless unless they win nine six. With Chris Jones having yeah. two sacks, right. you know, like, but
0: honestly, at,
1: at after last year. I don't know. Year, if Kelsey has like 14 catches,
0: then I think you're getting, you know what I mean? Then I, I you're just, getting into
1: the area where I could see it. I just don't believe that a defensive lineman, after last year, when Aaron Donald was not the Super Bowl MVP, despite one of the great individual games I've ever seen, Yeah, I don't really believe that a defensive lineman, and so I've picked two of them. <laughs> I was just say you're the one who picked Chris Jones. <laughs> yeah, and I've got the,
0: and I've got like, too. And here's why it doesn't make any
1: sense to pick him. <laughs> no, but I mean, if they win a 9-6 game, right, then yeah. I th- at least that's a possibility. But I think Kelsey would have to... How, many, how How much yak would Kelsey have to rack up to win MVP? Yeah, a lot. But he's really good at yak.
3: He would have to score, like, all other touchdowns.
0: It, it, no, it has to be, like, ten,
1: at least 10-plus catches and two touchdowns. He's the, best Which... at, he's the best at yak since UConn Cornelius. <laughs> No. What? <laughs> I have no idea what that means. He had yaks. <laughs> Did he? I, think so. I don't think so. <laughs> he must have. <laughs> <Then you're> gonna... <laughs> he must have. All <laughs> All right. Right. Living that far north Dom. is a figure. You definitely have yaks. Definitely
0: have yaks. <laughs> Dom is frantically telling me to get off the air. <laughs> yeah. so I'm going to do that. Have a great weekend, everyone. Enjoy the Super Bowl. It's Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650.